Uh, well, good afternoon. Uh, I've been up here a couple of times, but I haven't introduced myself yet. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Brad Vitalini, and I'm the Youth and Kids Minister here at Jamboree Anglican, uh, and I'm pretty excited uh, to open up God's Word together this afternoon. Uh, but how about I pray before we do that? Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you uh, for not leaving us to our own devices, uh, for not leaving us on our own. Thank you for sending Jesus uh, and help us as we, now, as we now come to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, help us to realise what that means for our lives. Help your spirit speak through me and help uh, remove all distractions uh, from our minds right now so that we might be changed by your spirit. Amen. Well, I wonder how many times... Have you been asked the question, maybe from someone you don't know, who are you? Who are you? Have you ever asked yourself the question, who am I? Have a think. How would you answer that? If someone was to ask you right here and now, who are you? What do you think you'd say? Maybe you talk about what you do, or you'd probably say your name, where you come from, your family... Maybe your interests. But who actually are you? What defines you? What is your identity? I reckon there aren't many people out there that think about their identity more than teenagers. And as someone who was pretty recently a teenager, uh, I remember trying to figure out who I was. I I remember that being a bit of a challenge. Should should I get into music? Should that be my thing? Maybe, Maybe sport. Uh, Should I value having lots of friends or what what do people think of me? And in hindsight, maybe with a last name like Vitellini, I should have moved to Italy and spent my life inventing new types of pasta. Who knows? But sampling pasta all day would certainly be at least at some level a fulfilling life. Um, But it's a serious question, isn't it? Who am I? And what do I do with my life? I think perhaps now, maybe more than ever, people, young and old, are really starting to wonder about who they are and how they find their place and their purpose in this life. And you you would have heard some ideas that our world gives us about some things that define our identity. Things like ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or which groups we might fit into. Those are the ideas that are put forward by the world as the main things that shape who we are. But the messages we get from the world about what shapes our identity are actually not really that helpful. As a culture, Australians have largely accepted that those things sort of define who we are. And yet, if you look around, people, and particularly young people, are still really confused about who they are and how they should live. And as it turns out, we actually aren't the first people to ever need some guidance uh, about how how to discover our identity. And our passage today in 1 Peter deals with similar questions of identity that the early church had. And so this passage in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 12, is part of a letter the Apostle Peter wrote to the church, uh, to the early church Christians, scattered throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, And this letter, why Peter wrote it, was to encourage readers to endure under the suffering and persecution they were experiencing under unbelieving governments. 
because, and they could, they could have their faith firm in Jesus uh, because they believed in his name. And in the first part of the letter, Peter uh, has reminded the Christians of their sure hope in Jesus' victory and death. Now he moves on to what living in that truth looks like. And so he addresses his readers. He says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. Now that language sort of sounds a little bit mysterious and spiritual and maybe slightly removed from our contemporary context today. Uh, But what Peter's doing here is he's using language uh, from the Old Testament to help describe the present reality in which we now live, this side of the cross. Uh, And he does that a few times throughout this passage. And so the temple, as we talked about in question time earlier, was the physical dwelling place of God among his people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. And like a lot of old buildings, the cornerstone had to be straight and true in order for the building to stand. So the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid. It was like the reference point for the rest of the building that would set the angle for the walls and the height of the stonework. uh, And no building would ever stand without a cornerstone. And when Jesus walked the earth, he did away with the need for a physical temple because he was God and he was dwelling among his people. And so people didn't need to go to God, uh, go to the temple to access God anymore. And Peter says that even though he was rejected by those people and they put him to death on a cross... God had still chosen him for great honour, the foundation on which Christians build their lives, the cornerstone. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And now that's a little bit more confusing language, but... What Peter's saying is that if you are a follower of Jesus, then God is building your life as living stones built on the living cornerstone. And as Christian, Jesus gives your life eternal meaning and purpose and value. But even more than that, right? Have a look. Peter is saying that we have the privilege of being able to encounter God personally as we live our lives in worship of him. And that's actually a bit of a privilege, right? Because in the Old Testament, that was reserved for priests who came to the altar in the temple to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Since Jesus has done away with our need for the temple, he has brought peace between God and us. We can talk to God and and live lives that please him, all thanks to Jesus' one perfect final sacrifice. Do you ever take that for granted? Do you ever take it for granted that you can just have a chat to the creator of the universe? If you're anything like me, the answer is probably yes. I, I, I take praying for granted sometimes. Because sometimes when you've been given a gift, you, you didn't have to work for it, and so it seems free, and you might not place as much value on it as you should. But it's, it's crazy that we can talk to God. Like, think about that. What a shame we so often take it for granted. 
The gift of prayer was free for us because it came at a cost for Jesus. None of us could talk to God if Jesus hadn't sacrificed himself for us. Because Jesus' death took on God's righteous anger at us on himself and he gave us peace with God. And that's what Peter reminds his readers of by quoting Isaiah 28 verse 16 in the next verse. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honour. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So Peter's use of the Old Testament here is to remind his readers that God is sovereign and his plans always come to fruition. Nothing can stand between him and his plans being accomplished. And so they can trust that even though they're experiencing intense persecution just for believing in Jesus, God will never let them be disgraced. Their identity is unchangeable. And so if those who trust in him will never be disgraced, what about those who don't trust in him? Yes, you who trust in him recognise the honour God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they do not obey God's word and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. And those quotes are from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. And I want to draw a particular attention to this verse, the one from Isaiah, because it paints a bit more of a frightening picture than it may even seem at first glance. Another translation of that verse calls Jesus a rock of stumbling and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. And why this verse is frightening is because it gives no room for excuse to someone who rejects Jesus. Because the verse doesn't say he is the stone that people avoid or walk around or sidestep. It says he is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall, the rock of offence. This verse is talking about people who have looked at Jesus from every side. They've examined him and then... Just dismissed him. Dismissed his claims, dismissed his life, dismissed his work, death and resurrection. And this verse says that doing that is looking, it's like looking at a perfect cornerstone, deciding, ah, oh, it's not for you, I don't need this, I don't need that cornerstone, and you go off and trying to build a building without one. There's no foundation, there's, there's no direction and there's no hope for the building to stand that's what people do when they reject Jesus. They choose a life that is devoid of any eternal meaning and eventually, as Peter says, they meet the fate that was planned for them. God gives them over to their own desires. They want nothing to do with God, so God says, okay, and God removes his presence from them. As C.S. Lewis famously once said, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. But Peter, talking to those who believe, says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. 
for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And again, alluding to the Old Testament book of Exodus this time, Peter says that as, as Christians, we are a chosen people. We are God's family. We're chosen from all over the world. We're a spiritual nation that's not based on ethnic identity or geographical borders. But what do you think about the line, God's own possession? God's very own possession. That seems like a pretty countercultural idea to me. Right? In this day and age, when freedom to do what you want and to, to be yourself is prized so highly, should Christians still think of themselves as God's very own possession? Or is that an outdated idea? Well, I think according to the Bible, Christians being God's own possession isn't actually just an idea. It's reality. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Jody. It says, You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. And we can see in the second sentence of that verse that God redeemed us for a purpose, not just for our own enjoyment or that, so we can live how we want to live, but so that we can glorify Him by showing others the goodness of God, where to find life. And in his last allusion to the Old Testament, Peter alludes to Hosea to reinforce the idea that that plan of God redeeming us was not a plan B. God had planned this since before time began. Once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. And so in his mercy, God has taken all sorts of people from all walks of life throughout all times in history and gave them identity when they had none. And that identity is built on Jesus, the cornerstone. Now, Christianity is, is often portrayed by the media as, as a white sort of European religion, but that simply isn't true. God's universal church is made up of people from all over the world. For example, there's more Christians in China than there are people in Australia. In North Africa, Christians are constantly being killed and persecuted for their faith, yet they still meet together to gather around God's word. Our own Graham and Patty Scarrett from Jamboree have spent years with Christians in Chile, training up gospel workers in South America. Wherever Christians are from and whatever their background, Jesus gives all Christians a new identity. And that means that us here in Jamboree, we're brothers and sisters in Christ with people from all over the world. We share in that common identity as a holy spiritual nation. And as we come to the last two verses of this passage, this, this really, these verses set the tone for the rest of the letter. Uh, and it's kind of the start of the application. This is where the rubber really hits the road about what do we do with our new identity? How do we live as God's own possession? Well, we have a warning of what not to do and then we have an exhortation of what to do. So, here's what not to do. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. 
And you can kind of read the emotion, you can feel the emotion in that sentence. Dear friends. It can also be translated to beloved. He's begging his readers, whom he dearly loves, to remember their identity. They don't belong to this world. They live in it, but they do not belong to it. They belong to God, who bought them at a price. And the same applies to us. Now, worldly desires refers to the sinful nature in all people, that desire we all inherently have to serve ourselves and put ourselves in the place of God. And so the desire to serve ourselves above God and revert back to who we were before he bought us, those desires are real and they are strong and they wage war against our souls. And that's another countercultural message, I think, because what does our world say? Our world says that we should act, we should act out our feelings and desires. And only when we act in accordance with our deepest feelings and desires do we find out who we really are. The message that is presented to young people to trust their feelings above all else, above tradition, above what their parents say, above what the Bible says. Trust your feelings, those worldly desires we all have. Well, I could hardly imagine a more confusing, misleading message to give anyone, particularly young people. Follow those very desires which wage war against our souls? What a deadly path to follow. God has something very different to say than what our world does. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. So don't be fooled by the temptations the world offers you. They are not morally neutral. They wage war against your soul. So that's what not to do. And Peter moves on to what we should do. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbours. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honourable behaviour and they will give honour to God when he judges the world. So this is our, this is our last verse. And as God's possessions, our lives should reflect God's character as we live among unbelievers. Obeying his word, loving God and our neighbour above ourselves and living properly is mentioned for a very worthy reason, as you can see on the screen. Because even if we are accused of doing wrong, a Christian's good life and witness may still result in an unbeliever's salvation. And that's what our identity is about, right? That's our purpose. Remember in verse 7, it's to show others the goodness of God. And now, according to the nerdy commentary that I read, uh, in the original Greek, those two verses that we just looked at are actually one sentence in the original letter. And what that clearly tells us is that you can't separate those two verses. You can't separate those seemingly two commands. They're actually one command with two parts. You can't do one without doing the other. And so there's no point trying to run from worldly desires if you don't know where to run to. 
run to God in prayer and turn to his word for wisdom. And likewise, don't try and live for God and at the same time be content to live enslaved to sin. You can't serve two masters. It doesn't work like that. Peter's saying we've got to guard how we live. In chapter 5 of the letter, Peter describes the devil as prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So run from temptation. Run to God's grace and take refuge in his grace. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and embrace your identity as God's possession. Live properly. Use the money and possessions that God has given you to serve him. Use your social media for him, not your own self-promotion. Love others as you talk to them. Love others in the way that you talk about them. They're just some of the ways we can live out our identity in Christ. And I want to give one word of warning. You can't get the order wrong. You can't do all those things. You can't live properly to earn an identity in Christ. It doesn't work like that. Peter doesn't say you can be living stones or you can be holy priests as long as you live good lives among your neighbours. He says you already are living stones and holy priests if your life is built on Christ, the cornerstone. And so if you repent of your sin and you trust in Jesus as the way to eternal life, you become part of God's family. And then your life gains that eternal meaning, purpose and value. And so if you haven't put your trust in Jesus or you're not sure, then make today the day that you do that. And if you're not sure how to, or you have questions, talk to someone you trust at church, or myself or another one of the staff. Examine Christ as the cornerstone. Is, are his claims true? Is he straight and true as he says? Is he worth building your life on? If you're not sure yet, then take a close look. Because anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So who are you? I wonder what you'll say next time someone asks, tell me about yourself. What makes you tick? What are you going to say? You could tell them about your interests, or your school, or your job, or your family. Or you could start with what really defines who you are. You could talk about how you're a living stone built on Christ the cornerstone and be a part of a royal priesthood that transcends earthly borders who God has called out of darkness into his wonderful light. You might get a few funny looks if you do that. Don't do that. But maybe, who knows? But it could be as simple as saying, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and I'm a carpenter. Or I'm a Christian and I enjoy sport or reading. Or I'm a Christian and I play music. I'm a Christian and I'm at uni. But I'm a Christian first. I challenge you to turn those conversations, turn your conversations into opportunities for the gospel. And doing that, talking in line with our identity, will help us keep ourselves grounded in the truth that we are God's own possession. 
and live in line with what our identity is, right? We are li- his living stones built on Christ, the cornerstone. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So let's live as people, in, as God's people in light of his mercy. We're going to sing about his mercy now. Yeah.